Hello and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know. This is a podcast about the classical world. We talk about books, we talk about art, we talk about <clears throat> old things, history, and we are trying to do that in a way that isn't awful and a total drudgery for everyone, like some of the classes you probably had in high school. Well, shots fired. Yeah, I know. Well, I, didn't you have those classes? I had same. those classes. I know, but... No, I loved every single one of my classes. What are you all talking about? This is not true. I've no. made that up. Yep. Anyway, I am here. My name is AJ Hannenberg, and I am here with uh, Mr. Graham Donaldson. Hello. And Mr. Thomas Fletcher Magby. Hi. And that's the podcast. That's it. three of us. And today we're talking about, from his words, anything he wants to talk about. <laughs> that is actually what I said the topic for today was. That is not actually our topic for today. You, I guess, you don't want to no, talk about this? I hate this topic very much. <laughs> I just brought it. I was, I was under coercion. I'm talking about this. Yep. Now, today I'm talking about a uh, sermon, a message given by a Mr. Clive Staples Lewis. I guess we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, this... Uh, so the origination of this topic and why I'm bringing it up now is that we have a, uh, a Patreon where people support us. And at, uh, as a part of that patronage, as a, por- a part of that support, we do monthly AMAs, which means ask us any, or it means ask me anything. But anyway, someone asked us about our favorite, was it essays of C.S. Lewis? Do y'all remember? They just, they asked us for like some of our favorite works by mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis. And I brought up one called, um, it's a, it's a speech he gave called learning in wartime. And I think you two had mentioned that you had not read this speech before. Nope. Have oh, you read I, this before? Oh, yes. Oh, never, well, never mind. AJ, AJ hadn't heard about it, and so I wanted to spend the next hour teaching AJ. Awesome. I'm in. Good. Cool. I'll, so. All right, I'll catch you guys later. Uh, <laughs> this would be good. Can, can we just tag ourselves out? Do, do we get, like, substitutes when that happens? Like, what? Like tap out days? Yeah. Oh, I know this stuff. Yeah, this is good. <laughs> that, would, that would be, like, 80% of my episodes. <laughs> every time I'm like, I want to talk about the, you know, Machiavelli's The Prince. Graham's like, ah, oh, yes, I remember this from college. I did a dissertation on this. Yeah. And then, <laughs> I studied yeah. this extensively. Yeah, exactly. So thankfully, this speech is pretty short. Uh, if you were to look it up online, you'd find that it's about six pages long. So I will be quoting pretty freely from it so that we can kind of follow the argument. Um, again, you two are smarter than me. I think that sometimes uh, C.S. Lewis's speeches can be difficult <clears throat> to follow. Um I, I sat in, it was my first year at Veritas, so many moons ago, I sat in when AJ was teaching on the weight of glory. This was back at the old campus. Mm-hmm. I just remember you making the point to the students that the weight of glory and many other of Lewis's talks are a chronological argument, or there's probably a, a better phrase for it than that. But essentially, you have to follow each step of the argument that he's making, as mm-hmm. opposed to what's the name of the structure, where essentially you, you say what your argument is, and then you give three points backing up that argument. Rhetorical form. I mean, yeah. that would just be by strength of point, I guess. Yeah, but those kind of talks are usually easier to follow because if you get lost, you're just hearing one of three arguments for uh, a thesis statement yeah. you already yeah. heard, as opposed to with Lewis, where if you get lost at any point, if you miss point four, you uh-oh. miss the rest of the speech, yeah. right? And that's kind of the, the the end of it. So it's probably less of an issue for learning in wartime because it is a shorter talk. But that's why I will be quoting from it as much as I can. All right, learning in wartime. It comes out in 1939. That's when he gives this talk. What what is happening in 1939? It's pretty quiet. It's a quiet year, and we couldn't yeah. find much to be going on. Well, it depends where you are. I think That's, this is also probably a true statement. Uh, what are what are some things that might be important that are going on uh, in and around 1939? Um, Hitler invades Poland. Yeah. So we get we get this uh, event that will eventually be called World War II. But mm-hmm. um, so yes, World War II is, is kicking off in 1939. Um, I. Uh, there's no way to summarize World War II. It, it was a big war. It happened. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great <laughs> summary. <laughs> okay, good. That's literally in the name, so I feel pretty good about that. Um, uh, everyone, everyone 
was involved. It was yes. global. It's, yes, <laughs> part of it being World War. This has been our best episode yet, I think. <laughs> we, uh, anyway, so, uh, and this topic of learning in wartime, he's attempting to answer this question. I, again, you all know this, but C.S. Lewis was, um, um, uh, he was a writer, but also an educator. He worked in universities. And so the question is kind of like, what should people be doing during this time? During, while the world is going to war, you have these people that are still working at universities. Should they be doing yeah. that? Is that a good use of their time? Is that, a, is that a wise use of their time? This is like the ultimate answer to why do we, why do we studying this? Yes. <laughs> yes. Why do I need to learn this? And that's part of why, I, yeah, it's helpful because if learning is worthwhile in the midst of World War II or in the start of World yeah. War II, then it's probably worthwhile at all times, right? So that's kind of the, the point we'll get to eventually. What was the occasion? Of him giving this oh, talk, okay. yeah. uh, uh, he was asked to. In um, well, like, was it was it a chapel or yeah, was it a all, universe, was it like a uh, USO tour? Uh, yeah, was he like giving it, it to the troops? A like sermon back, the preached. Backup dancing girls. <laughs> yep, he was he was the uh, halftime act in this. Yeah, um, a sermon preached. Was Nelly? Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, Nelly is beyond time. A sermon preached in the Church of Saint Mary the Virgin, Oxford, Autumn, nineteen thirty nine. So, a, it's a sermon that is preached in this church. Mm. And the message is given specifically to students, which you'll hear in the opening paragraph. Um, I probably don't need to belabor this point, but there was something of an open question as to whether there should still be students while the world is at war, right? Like, Like if you're thinking about the best use of one's time, you could pretty reasonably make the case that defeating the Nazis is like a pretty pressing issue, some might say. Bumped to the top of the list. Yeah, that's. it might be a little more important than your... Uh, English class or right like potentially you, you would understand if someone was like hey I can't make it today I need to go fight the Nazis well maybe like international it's dance it's an excused absence yes, <laughs> yeah. you, you that. yeah, that's uh, absolutely reasonable uh, one of the uh, uh, college I don't totally understand how this works you all will correct me but uh, um, there are colleges that are affiliated with or <clears throat> Oxford is made up of many colleges maybe is one way to say it yep. and one of them is Somerville College I don't know the names of them okay so um, Somerville College is was the all women's mm. was an all women's school that was affiliated with this kind of group of um, colleges that make up Oxford or a part of Oxford Council, I think is what they call it here. But anyway, uh, this was in 1938, so pre, pre the war, but obviously leading up to it. Uh, this is one of the English fellows who said, uh, it would be advisable to ascertain if possible whether in the event of an international emergency, university education would continue, and if so, on what basis? So that is posed to this kind of Oxford community, which then Lewis is responding to. Uh, and I'm greatly helped by, it's literally cslewis.com, and this article is written by Dr. Joel Heck. Do you like that for a name? He lives Dr. in Austin. So that, Dr. Heck? Dr. Heck. That's a great name. Anyway, Dr. Heck. Not if you teach middle school. They, he might get a couple jokes about that. I mean, you could teach all, like, give your kids all kinds of cool names. Yeah. Call one, like, Aw. Yeah. Aw Heck. Aw Heck. Aw yeah. Heck. Now, I had an English teacher named, his, he was, his last name was Butts, and he was doctor, Aww. he was Dr. Butts, and uh, poor guy. Yeah. It's a rough, rough high I don't school. know, I feel like that's one you could lean into. I had a teacher named Mr. Bible. That's a pretty solid last Mr. name. Mr. Bible? Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. He was great. And Was he a Bible teacher? No, no, he taught science, <laughs> okay. and it was one of the best science classes I've ever had. He was great. But he was literally Bible man, isn't that what that means? Mr. Bible, yeah. yeah I mean, but then people would find out, oh, we teach science with the Bi- with Bible, <laughs> and everyone was like, I'm not going to this. It would be unacceptable. This, Close-minded school. He loved to embody that paradox. <laughs> um, th- another thing about Lewis. Do you all know anything about Lewis and World War the First? He fought in it. He did fight in it. Do you know anything about his involvement in it? Uh, he was in the trenches. He, um, I can't remember if he got hurt or not. He got but, hurt. Yeah. 
but he also like so you have all the the stories of the men coming back who are absolutely traumatized and it was you know a horrible thing and lewis at least never really he said it was bad right but he never really intimated that it was this like shattering experience like it was for a lot of like you know the poets who come back like sassoon and all these people who come back and write these poems about the how the war sort of destroyed um idealism yeah he comes back and he's like so that's what they wrote about in the iliad I think it's his line that he yeah. says. So, but uh, I, I think the important point is you're not going to hear this like super pacifist speech yes. right here. Like yeah, you see yeah. a place for war yeah. and especially in the case of fighting a great moral evil such yeah. as the Nazis, he's going to find that justified. So just in case, he doesn't really go into it, but in case you're wondering where is that um, like questioning of war, he has other essays where he talks about war and that topic. So it's kind of outside the scope just in case anyone's curious about that. And for listeners, he is um, a modern proponent of the just war theory. He yeah. sort of... Yeah. I don't know if he continued to make it popular, but he did a, a bunch of um, – so his writings on war really sort of were modern adaptations of Augustine's or Augustine's hmm. um, discussion. Augustine, obviously. Yeah. The Augustine's only discussion on just war. So, yeah, he, he did not serve for very long in uh, World War I. He um, essentially went into combat, um, was wounded, and um, by the – you know the, um, the the shell that wounded him killed two other men of his of his battalion group. I don't know what the phrasing is, but anyway, so he he is wounded. He's uh, unable to go back into combat after that, mm. and so then um, so he's not. I want to say he's in actually a part of the war for I think it's nine months. I think it's less than a year. But anyway, he served in World War One, and then does come back like Graham was talking about. Not. Um, he is not a broken man. Yeah. But also not, um, critical of war Mm -hmm. qua war. Like he Mm -hmm. sees a place for, for war. Okay. And then I guess I'll just start reading it again. I'll be, I'll be able to quote a lot of it because I think if you read it straight, it's like a 15 minute talk. So we'll go and give comments as we go through it. So just so we can maybe to Graham's question of who this is to in the setting, I'll, I'll just read the opening. A university is a society for the pursuit of learning. As students, you will be expected to make yourselves or to start making yourselves into what the Middle Ages called clerks, into philosophers, scientists, scholars, critics, or historians. And at first sight, this seems to be an odd thing to do during a great war. What is the use of beginning a task which we have so little chance of finishing? Or, even if we ourselves should happen not to be interrupted by death or military service, why should we, indeed how can we, Continue to take an interest in these placid occupations when the lives of our friends and the liberties of Europe are in the balance. Is it not like fiddling while Rome burns? So give me a give me a reaction to that first paragraph. Do you find this a compelling question he has raised? Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, yeah. I'm sure it was one that was being asked by the students in the colleges, yeah. right? How can I stay here and go about reading books when all of my friends are at the front, right? right? That's a, you know, shouldn't I be protecting my mother and family and protecting this very college? It's, right. it's really hard to justify reading the Odyssey while that's happening. Yeah. Is this, isn't, is this clerkdom that I'm undertaking a luxury yeah. and it should be given up like how we need to also give up other luxuries to the state for the war effort. Yeah. So like there's a potential for selfishness. I'm yeah. doing this to, I'm comfortable while other people are fighting this war, mm-hmm. like on my behalf. Almost. I could be making shells or building tanks or even doing things at home. Yeah. The other thing I was contemplating is how 
Kevin Smith's movie Clerks is not about not about the same the thing. same kind of Clerks. Yeah, not not really related much at all. Yeah. Some might say, but you're recommending that movie. Is that your I've favorite? never watched it? Is that I your just, favorite I'm movie? I just know of it. Oh, okay. Um, AJ wants to talk about all two of them, three of them. Aren't there multiple? I was never much of a Clerks fan. Uh, I don't no, think. I'm not a big Kevin Smith guy. No. But I do know that Silent Bob, I mean, that's the reason he is silent is because he's thinking about this kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's going through this. justify <laughs> yeah. being a clerk in the sure. face of yeah. such gra- gravity. Mm-hmm. And it really, really reframes the whole movie. Really, really <laughs> appreciate that. Something also, I don't know if this is, if this is to the argument Lewis will make or opposed to it. What percent of adults had a college degree in 1939 when Lewis is writing this? Oh, it must have been pretty low. Give me a, give me an, an estimate. Seven. Seven. Um, so it's actually lower than both of your numbers. No, seven men. Oh, <laughs> no, it's three. No. Uh, so Graham guessed 7% or seven men. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, AJ guessed 20%. The number, so the easiest number to find was for the U.S. population, 5.5% of men and 3.8% of women had a college degree. I tried looking up numbers for Britain also, and it seems to be the number was slightly lower than that as well. So slightly lower than eight? Yes. Oh, your, yeah. Oh, you're more correct is what you're trying yes, to say? Yes, that's what I'm trying But to you're go. both wrong because you both went over. This is the... I was seven. Right. I mean, you said it was slightly lower than eight, which was what it was no, in the No, slightly lower than five. Lower than five. Oh, woof. Sorry, yeah. So a very a, a much smaller proportion of the population was um, engaged in college as well. Current, you know, currently, it's roughly a third. So you overshot it by almost 100%. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but you were very close. You were closer. I you, you were zero less do- Zero dollars, Bob. <laughs> Uh, yes. So, but I, what I can't tell is, is that a justification? It's such a small number of people, therefore it matters less if they are convinced to go to war or Hmm. it's such a small number of people doing it anyway, they should just go to war. I don't, I don't think that the smallness or largeness has anything to do with the question, right? If if we're having tickle fights, I'm like, well, there's only a few of us. Yeah. So we should continue having tickle fights because it's, you know what I mean? It's the no, activity. I don't know what you mean. Well, it, it's the activity that matters, <laughs> yes, right? Sure. It's not yes. the question. Ponder it, Thomas. It's, not, it's <laughs> not the size of the group, right? If yeah. I found it's a whole bunch of guys and they're like, listen, we're having tickle fights. It's important in war. I'd be like, no, it's not. Go yes. and do something good for the war. Yes, that's a that's a fair point. Um, okay, let me keep going with his argument. Now, that's why you teach I admit, lot. tickle fights was a weird. It was a weird. That's why you teach logic, AJ. This is why you're a summer logic We've already made it to clerks and we've made it to tickle fights, so I just don't know where we're going. Now, it seems to me that we shall not be able to answer these questions until we have put them by the side of certain other questions which every Christian ought to have asked himself in peacetime. I spoke just now of fiddling while Rome burns, but to a Christian, the true tragedy of Nero must be not that he fiddled while the city was on fire, but that he fiddled on the brink of hell. You must forgive me for the crude monosyllable. I know that many wiser and better Christians, he talks about how people don't like to talk about hell. Um, um, You'll talk about how Jesus is the one who talks about hell, not only Paul. Um, if we do not, uh, there are these people who want to remove hell. They're not really removable, these statements about hell. They're not removable from the teaching of Christ or of his church. If we do not believe them or um, our presence in this church is great tomfoolery, if we do, we must sometime overcome our spiritual prudery and mention them, these warnings of hell. So again, uh, he uses this comparison to uh, fiddling while Rome burns to talk about the feeling one has of learning while the world around them is burning. But the tragedy that Lewis is pointing to, going back to Nero, the one who fiddled while Rome burned, or that's the the story that goes, um, is that he was um, um, flippant in the face of an eternal destination of hell, right? Not that he was fiddling while the city burned, that there's like a greater thing happening Mm -hmm. than just him ignoring the city burning. Um, I'll keep going unless someone has a comment there. I think he's setting up the argument. Um, So the moment that we take hell seriously, the moment we do so, we can see that every Christian 
who comes to a university must at all times face a question compared with which the question raised by the war are relatively unimportant. He must ask himself how it is right or even psychologically possible for creatures who are every moment advancing either to heaven or to hell to spend any fraction of the little time allowed them in this world on such comparative trivialities as literature or art, mathematics or biology. If human culture can stand up to that, it can stand up to anything. To admit that we can retain our interest in learning under the shadow of these eternal issues, but not under the shadow of a European war, would be to admit that our ears are closed to the voice of reason and are very wide open to the voice of our nerves and our mass emotions. I mean, it's a good rhetorical move to, to sort of even, ampl- even amplify it more and say, well, in the face of eternal matters of the soul, heaven and hell, right. um, can, is education important for that? Because that's even more important than talking about the war. Right. And of course, presumably the argument's going to be like, well, of course it is. Like, that's what we do during peacetime. So. Right. Uh, but again, to, back to AJ's point, like looking at the activity itself and judging it as, as worthwhile, as worthwhile yeah. um, in whether it's war that it's being put up against or whether it's like the, in the eternal cosmos, the moral sort of fabric of the universe. Sure. Yeah, I agree. So again, he's made, he's made it so that it's not only about this one issue of the mm-hmm. European war. It's like a question that must always be asked. Why am I doing this instead of something that could be more eternally significant? Do you have thoughts on a response to this question, or is this a question that you think about yourselves of, I mean, you pick where your time goes, right? Yeah, I remember not having, having a conversation with somebody and, and not having a good response to the question, and it was, well, we have the Bible, why should I read the classics? Why right. should I read Iliad, Odyssey? Why should I read any of these old books? Why can't, why, I should just be like spending all of my time reading the Bible. And I remember not having a good answer to it. And it's kind of like the same question, or it's kind of getting at the same thing. It's like, well, shouldn't I just focus on the quote-unquote the spiritual things, the divine things, and leave aside the perishing things? Yeah, I mean, um, there are people that do that, right? I mean, you can mm-hmm. go to a monastery, and that can be your entire life, mm-hmm. right, of um, prayer and reading scripture and... Um, service, right? You're serving a local community. With Shoot, that. what were you doing podcasting, Thomas? <laughs> we, uh, we're this is our last episode. <laughs> I think. I've, I've, uh, anyway, I've done that a few times. Where anyway, I, I promise Lewis will not reach that conclusion, but I guess we'll have to get there. I'll keep going. This indeed is the case with most of us, certainly with me. For that reason, I think it is. I think it important to try to see the present calamity in a true perspective. The war creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. Yeah. Human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. Human culture has always had to exist under the shadow of something infinitely more important than itself. If men had postponed the search for knowledge and beauty until they were secure, the search would never have begun. We are mistaken when we compare war with normal life. Life has never been normal. Even those periods which we think most tranquil, like the 19th century, turn out on closer inspection to be full of crises, alarms, difficulties, emergencies. Plausible reasons have never been lacking for putting off all merely cultural activities until some imminent danger has been averted or some crying injustice put right. But humanity long ago chose to neglect those plausible reasons. They wanted knowledge and beauty now and would not wait for the suitable moment that never comes Periclean Athens leaves us not only the Parthenon, but significantly the funeral oration. 
the insects have chosen a different line. They have sought first the material welfare and security of the hive, and presumably they have their reward. Men are different. They propound mathematical theorems in beleaguered cities, conduct metaphysical arguments in condemned cells, make jokes on scaffolds, discuss the last new poem while advancing to the walls of Quebec, and comb their hair at Thermopylae. This is not panache. It is our nature. So what's he saying there? That we, that this is sort of, but the, that, yeah, we're never, we are never normal, never at that position where we are safe and secure, and yeah. it's sort of human nature to, to be making art and to sort of continuing the, continuing the mission. Yeah. Almost no other situation in which we can make art or yeah. beauty, no, to make beautiful things, literature. So this means that, you, like, You'll never I, be able to justify it is essentially his. Yeah. If you have to be totally secure and right. safe, you'll never be able to justify it. There's always like a better thing you could be doing, right? A more useful thing. I'm waiting for AJ to disagree with it. I can see AJ. AJ the gears are turning. turning. I see it right now. They, I mean, yeah, yeah, they are. Just to argue that this is something we do naturally is not a justification for the activity. There's all kinds of sure. things we do naturally that are not good. Sure. So saying there is never a safe time to do this and it's something we do naturally is as of yet, still has not proven to me that this is a good thing. I agree. Maybe to his point of discussing the war specifically, what he's trying to address is people who say, because there's a war, we can't pursue these other things. Well, that actually the war is not a thing that's changed our situation. We've always been on this precipice. The war is just the newest. Yeah, I, I agree there. You're never yeah. going to find a time when all, all ills of the human race have been solved and therefore now we can really get Do down art. to the business of art. Right. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. Well, like 1997. Was that like the best year? What was that? Y2K was coming, my man. No, we had to reprogram all the computers. That's true. That's <laughs> I don't think we did, though. Wasn't the whole point that like nothing happened? Yeah, it was pretty much fine. But who knew? You didn't know. Yeah, you I were too young, true. Thomas. In 2000? I was 11 years old. 2007? No, 1997? Oh, yeah, I mean, 97, I was eight years old. Yeah. So, yeah. In retrospect, I didn't party hard enough at the millennium. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't understand how significant it was. Yeah. I was like, this is going to come around again. It won't. Well, it will, but not for you. Yeah, not for me. Well, the one that's this one. This is not important, but there's a a, a time that's called UTC. Is that what's that? Hold on. Is that um, coordinated universal time? Is this the one? There's a there's a time code that's tracking since January one, nineteen seventy, and it's Why? like the number of it, they just picked a date, mm. and so it counts up the number of seconds since nineteen seventy. But based on the length of the string, it only lasts until twenty forty. So that's like your next one is if you can make it to 2040, mm. that's the next time that a lot of clocks will have to like reset because mm-hmm. it'll run out of seconds. 2012 was supposed to be the end of the world. There was that did that, not happen uh, either. The Mayan calendar, yeah. the Mayans. Uh, I figure they just said, why keep making more calendar? Yeah, yeah. This is pretty far they'll out. They'll be like, ah, oh, well, they'll just take it up point. later. Yeah. And then our, our forefathers will, or no, our ancestors will continue the calendars. Yeah, unfortunately not. All right. I'll keep going with this. So the current state of it is, the war has not changed the fact that things are uh, uh, dangerous, that things are risky, and that to pursue something that might be called unnecessary has always been done in the face of danger. And even in the face of literal imminent death, as example of walking to the gallows, walking to, to die, uh, it's not, we don't all, not, not all humans suddenly become, um, they don't lose their sense of humor at that point. Gallows humor is a phrase for a reason, right? But since we are fallen creatures, the fact that this is now our nature would not by itself prove that it is rational or right. This is hey, point. let's go, Lewis. We have, did you pull up the, do you have it in front of you? 
No, I would love. This is what I. Oh, do. you thought I was cheating? Well, I always <laughs> cheat when you all do episodes. I pull up the Wikipedia page. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, every time. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, so I assumed you all did the same. No, no. not at all. Oh, I don't even all. have a computer here. That's a good point. That's yeah. Uh, you have a cell phone. Sure, but I just look at my stocks. I just look at crypto <laughs> while you're talking. That's that. But only while I'm talking. It's the weirdest kidding. thing. No, uh, I, pulled up, I pulled up the quotes about why we can study the Greeks, yes. even if we have the Bible. Yes. So we can talk about that later. Mm. Okay. Or we can do it for in between if we don't get mm-hmm. to it. But no, I sit here and eat Reese's peanut butter cups. That is true. We have to inquire whether there is really any legitimate place for the activities of the scholar in a world such as this. That is, we have always to answer the question, how can you be so frivolous and selfish as to think about anything but the salvation of human souls? And we have at the moment to answer the additional question, how can you be so frivolous and selfish as to think of anything but the war? Now, part of our answer will be the same for both questions. The one implies that our life can and ought to become exclusively and explicitly religious. The other, that it can and ought to become exclusively rational. I believe that our whole life can and indeed must become religious in a sense to be explained later. But it is meant that all our activities are to be of the kind that can be recognized as sacred as opposed to secular. I won't go, I won't go into his details here right now, but um, just to, in response to his questions, how can you be so frivolous and selfish as to think about anything but the salvation of human souls? And then related, how can you be so frivolous and selfish as to think of anything but the war? Do we have my, any? Well, other? my like false equivalence alarm is going off, but I can't really phrase it. Is, is that a false equivalence by saying the war is like the eternal salvation question? And so if it's, if it's true for one, it's going to be true for the other? I'm, I'm still trying to track exactly what was happening in that passage. If there are two questions that have to be answered. The first, how can you be so frivolous and selfish as to think about anything but the salvation of human souls? Mm-hmm. That's the question we were just addressing. Mm-hmm. So how can you do any job other than be an evangelist right. mm-hmm. if... Eternity is real, if if there's a heaven and a hell. And then the second, that he was specifically open to this talking about, how can you be so frivolous and selfish as to think of anything but the war? So there's this like huge pressing thing in front of people. And he says we have those two to answer, or is he saying that they're essentially the same? He does not say that they're the same. He says there will be some similarities between the answers, but that that they're not entirely the same question. Yeah, that sounds fine to me. Um, so if he says they're not completely the same, then I guess there's not a false equivalence there. No, um, yeah, I don't think so. Some, there is some similarity in his answer, but I guess I'll keep going with it. Um, when I, before I became a Christian, I do not think I fully realized that one's life after conversion would inevitably consist in doing most of the same things one had been doing before, one hopes, in a new spirit, but still the same things. Before... I went to the last war. I certainly expected that my life in the trenches would, in some mysterious sense, be all war. In fact, I found that the nearer you got to the front line, the less everyone spoke and thought of the Allied cause and the progress of the campaign. And I'm pleased to find that Tolstoy, in the greatest war book ever written, records the same thing. And so, in its own way, does the Iliad. Neither conversion nor enlistment in the army is really going to obliterate our human life. Christians and soldiers are all men. The infidel's idea of a religious life and the civilian's idea of active service are fantastic. If you attempted in either case to suspend your whole intellectual and aesthetic activity, you would only succeed in substituting a worse cultural life for a better. You are not, in fact, going to read nothing, either in the church or in the line. If you don't read good books, you will read bad ones. If you don't go on thinking rationally, you will think irrationally. If you reject aesthetic satisfactions, you will fall into sensual satisfactions. So 
where's he going with this? That people want in raising this question of how should my life be different during the war or how should my life be different in the face of there being an eternal destination for people. There's this like, um, over stylized version of it where we think the soldier is only dedicated to war when they're in, when they're a part of the army. When he's not fighting. He's like doing pushups and yeah. polishing his gun. Yeah. It's, but everything is directed toward yeah. war. And in the same way, um, I, I don't think you'll use the term evangelist in here, but that's the thing I keep thinking. Like we think there's this like class of people who are only involved in like proclaiming the gospel so that people would like, um, make a choice about, you know, whatever that, they, that people could be saved through these people, um, going out and sharing the and They don't have taxes and they don't and that's like, the point. like change their oil. Never yeah. been to a coffee shop. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just like take the simple example of like those, both p- people in both situations are going to eat meals, right? They're going to mm-hmm. eat a breakfast, a lunch and a dinner. They are going to have downtime where they have to relax somehow because you're not working all the time. Three meals? You know, somebody's got to clean the shower. Someone has to clean the shower. Or someone has to clean wherever they live. You don't have to eat three meals a day. Sure, they have to eat something though, or else they. You also don't really have to clean the shower. It's <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> so gross. Um, but there are all these things, all these mundane parts of life that are still there, whether you are <clears throat> in pursuit of what one might consider a high goal or high purpose, or whether you're not. Whether no. you're but Lewis also has – he's coming out of the paradigm of what education in the college is for yep. is a ennobling of the person. Yeah. It is a tur- – like an, uh, turning someone into virtuous, a virtuous person, the, yep. the sort of the classical way of thinking about it. Whereas I can think that if I presented – and I know AJ does present this to his freshmen. When you present that idea to the students and their major paradigm that they live under is – this is training skills in order for me to work. Mm-hmm. And then you put in front of them, you could die right. sooner than you want. <laughs> then, then the question of like, well, why am I sitting in this class then? Or right. once, yeah, once you've got, you've got the work, now what? Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, so I, I can see that like, if, you know, the, the, this lecture would be, would be very interesting if you were presenting it at, um, was like a community college where the people are there because they're wanting to do vocational training. Now that's, sure. that's, you know, that's a necessary function of life, right. but he's, he's talking about this paradigm of, yes, uh, education as the, the soul's nobling as yes. the, the turning as yeah. But even in his most recent example right there of the, everyone's going to read books, you either read good mm-hmm. ones or bad ones. This education is not only for the people going to college that mm-hmm. he's talking to. Right. This this ennobling that you're talking about is for anyone who wants to engage in the life of the mind. Yeah, you're going to be th- and you're going to be out there thinking and having to process the world. Yeah. Um, and if you don't do it, you're just going to do it badly. Yes. Yeah. You're still or someone else is going to do it for you. <laughs> yeah. And probably do it badly. Yeah. Also. Right. Um, yeah. You will still be or control you. Right. Or like do it, That's you know, some sort say. of because he's even writing before propaganda. I mean, they, they had like. I get the sense that after World War II, there was a big sort of academic looking at propaganda right. because they're like, how on earth did the Germans become like this or right. whatever? Um, so he's, uh, I know Lewis talks about propaganda in lots of his essays later, not mm. like after the war. Right. Uh, he makes reference to it and as a, as a reason why one needs to be, you know, think for themselves and rational. But that plays in even better here. That's, I mean, that's mm-hmm. a great point of you will have to choose which way you're being developed and yeah. either you're directing that by picking good books or you're just <clears throat> taking whatever's around you. Mm-hmm. And that's where propaganda can have its influence, right? Oh, mm-hmm. I just thought of a fun in-between question. All right. 
Just kidding. Graham usually takes notes on paper plates and then raises those questions during uh, in between episodes. Yeah. I don't see a paper plate right now. No, though. it's in my brain. My, the paper he's going to forget it. The it's paper plate. Minutes, no, it's not. You're ab- absolutely going to forget the it. The paper plate of my mind. <laughs> wait, are you insulting yourself right now? I don't wait. It's, it's with such confidence. I know. It's open and willing to hold all sorts of things. No, you're. Uh, it's <laughs> also flimsy and easily thrown away. That's true. <laughs> kind of like people with open minds, am I right? When it, that's, when that's it gets right. wet, it gets pulpy and falls apart. Yeah. Yeah. What, what we need is a, like a, a, a rigid orthodoxy, a what? strong tower of <laughs> rigid orthodoxy. No, of un, Let, unyielding, unyielding rigid well, I can't iron remember. strength. I can't remember. Listen, we got a four-star review that uh, made fun of Graham for uh, <laughs> Graham specifically. It was Graham like everything's fine except, except for Graham, Graham because of his rigid orthodoxy and apparently AJ and I have open minds. My stubborn, I can't remember what it was. <laughs> Can everyone please leave a five-star review talking about how much you love Graham? Yeah. I think that would make his day. All right, I'm going to keep going. There is therefore this analogy between the claims of our religion and the claims of the war. Neither of them for most of us will simply cancel or remove from the slate the merely human life which we were leading before we entered them but they will operate in this way for different reasons. The war will fail to absorb our whole attention because it is a finite object and therefore intrinsically unfitted to support the whole attention of a human soul. In order to avoid misunderstanding, I must hear, um, I don't really want to go into the distinctions, but just to say the war is not a thing that is worth or even capable of um, being the only thing a person thinks about. Even if you're at the war. Yes. Yes. The, the war will not consume 24 hours of your day because as a human, you will have other interests, notices, concerns, mm-hmm. any of those things. What I find charming about the essay is that Lewis takes the intellectual life of everybody seriously. Yes. Like the, the you know, Oxford academic, but also the frontline person has an intellectual, like the, the, the frontline, the person on the front lines who's not sort of a, you know, you're... Oxford intellectual, your common man, he too has an intellectual life that should be um, reckoned with, should yeah, be should valued, be should be yeah. flowering, and, rec- and, 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 the, and that person should be taking responsibility for. Um, and um, anyway, so I, I, just, I just find it charming that when Lewis, you know, looks at the world and looks at and his fellow man, like, that's, he has the care, that, that's the care he thinks of. Yes. Yeah, he recognizes that they'll get into philosophical conversations about yeah. whether or not this is good and yeah. what'll, you know, what'll happen to your family when you're not here anymore. Like, those, the, that's is the this stuff worth it? Is this, is this fight yeah. worth it? And, yeah. And then the jokes that happen back and mm-hmm. forth. Like, it's, it's nice for him to recognize that. Mm-hmm. And I think he would be, we wouldn't buy it except that he was in the First World War. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. That he was willing to both risk his life, so take the role of being a soldier, but then also cared about intellectual pursuits. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he does the thing that he's recommending these people to do. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. All right. Um, he gives a, this is one of the more famous images from this lecture. Um, so he talks about the duties that people have. Some might have a religious duty. Some might have a soldierly duty if they sign up to be soldiers. Thus, we may have a, and, and then by comparison, thus we may have a duty to rescue a drowning man. And perhaps if we live on a dangerous coast to learn life-saving so as to be ready for any drowning man when he turns up, it may be our duty to lose our own life in saving him. But if anyone devoted himself to life-saving in the sense of giving in, giving it his total attention so that he thought and spoke of nothing else and demanded the cessation of all other human activities until everyone had learned to swim, he would be a monomaniac. The rescue of drowning men is then a duty worth dying for, but not worth living for. 
It seems to me that all political duties, among which I include military duties, are of this kind. A man may have to die for our country, but no man must, in any exclusive sense, live for his country. He who surrenders himself without reservation to the temporal claims of a nation or a party or a class is rendering to Caesar that which, of all things, most emphatically belongs to God mm. himself. It's a good line. It's mm. a good line. So there are things that are worth doing and that some people might be called to. There are things that are worth dying for. Worth dying for, but not worth devoting oneself entirely yeah. to. Um, did, did I hear correctly? He says all everything in the pol- in the political realm falls in that. Yeah. So oh. and he would put yeah anything that is in like a yeah a, t- a temporal concern. What's the phrase that he uses here? Um, without reservation to the temporal claims as uh, so a nation, party, or class is rendering to Caesar that which doesn't belong to him. So, and I think I mean this is maybe the the kind of pendulum swing you have to deal with. Of yeah, there are like normal parts of your life that you have to live for, but you then can't make a job your entire identity or your entire personality, right? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like the difference between when Churchill retires, he takes up painting and, and you know, writing history right. versus a polit- the politician who has no sort of concept of what they would do outside of office right. or whatever. It just has no, uh, yeah, or well, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, they are the, you can substitute that for any job. Right. Didn't uh, didn't Churchill write like twenty volume like yeah. he wrote like tons of books also and just anyway very interesting life. Uh, Lewis has similar things to say about religious occupations. It's different in that in some sense religion occupies every second of a person's life, but in the other you um, uh, in some sense it must occupy the whole of life. But you don't give up these like earthly concerns. Um, you still have to work. Uh, uh, our Lord attends a wedding and provides miraculous wine under the ages of his church. And in the most Christian ages, learning and the arts flourish. So you still have both things happening. The solution of this paradox, of course, is well known to you. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we don't just give out, give away these. Um, so just because we should not fully submit ourselves to these temporal aims does not mean that we give them up entirely um, in the pursuit of a religious life. If you're, unless you're a monk. So maybe when you retire to your country estate after yeah. years of service, yeah, naturally. Uh, what is going to be your intellect? What is like the book you are writing? You're going to write like a compendium of John Chrysostom? I'm not smart or, enough for uh, that. I'll do a coloring book. A coloring book? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do color. a classical coloring book. Okay. Um, it's going to be the uh, Iliad. It's going to be Staying in the Lines with Thomas Mann. Could Maggie. you do a coloring book about data science? Yeah, I'd love that too. Yeah. Well, no, so, no, he's, this is the whole point. He's, his life is not completely wrapped up in his, in his career. I'm asking what's his, what's the coloring thing? Book. Yeah. No, data a coloring science. book on data, data science. science. No, I think yeah. you're right. Uh, someone, I don't know who <laughs> bought this for us, but I'm very thankful to them. They bought us a set of four books that, Graham will hate this. I think AJ will love this. So it's a set of four books of like such and such topic for babies. And it's data science for babies. It's coding for babies, aerospace engineering for babies, and physics for babies, I think are the four. That's lovely. Anyway, it makes me laugh every time I see that. So we're starting our kids early. Does this mean I'm not classical because I'm talking with them about the servile arts? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm, I'm a horrible father. Um, he'll go on from here and I'll probably, again, I'll still be reading chunks, but I'll probably start skipping over more portions of this. Um, all our merely natural activities will be accepted if they are offered to God, even the humblest and all of them, even the noblest will be sinful if they are not. Christianity does not simply replace our natural life and substitute a new one. It is rather a new organization which exploits to its own supernatural ends these natural materials. Um, he'll go on here. He has this 
portion where he talks about like the um the inherent value of an activity is not tied in with um uh the type of work that someone is doing that the person who sweeps the floor has equal um spirituality to i think beethoven is his example um the work of beethoven and the work of a uh, of a char a charwoman becomes spiritually become spiritual on precisely the same condition, that of being offered to God, of being done humbly as to the Lord. This seems like a thing that AJ would appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just trying to see, have we answered the question at this point um, that there are things in life that are worth pursuing but not worth giving ourselves entirely to? And that's maybe one warning that the that a student needs to be wary of. But then on the other side, that they should be honoring God no matter what work that they are called to, that there's not some like hierarchy of the historians are more important than the English majors along that line. I don't think this, that we've completely answered the question. Okay. I mean, there's still there. I think there's still a hierarchy of things that you can do. Like if I have the option between teaching children literature and I don't know, stacking sticks on each other. And, and I, I, can, I can both offer both to God, plenty yep. fine, but I have an option between the two. I should probably be choosing to, teaching literature to kids. Just as if I am in wartime and there are two options between things to do, like, you know, selling reams of paper and working at the front are probably different in, in terms of hierarchy. Yep. Right? Just by saying that I can offer all things to God doesn't obliterate the hierarchy of activities. He still has to prove that, that one activity is more worthwhile in wartime than another... Well. Another thing. Yes, or I can't equally. give my, Yeah. Yes, I can't give my entire life to war. Absolutely. But the question remains, what else should I be giving my life to? And does that mean I don't have to give any of my life to war? Yep. I, I still don't think the question has been answered. Okay. Let me tr- let me try then. This is where he'll get at that part specifically. Great. This does not so he talks about this equal dignity between the um yeah, the work of Beethoven and um, other work. This does not, of course, mean that it is for anyone a mere toss-up whether he should sweep rooms or compose symphonies. Oh, there, you go. there we go. Lewis coming through in the clutch. A mole must dig to the glory of God, and a and the rooster must crow. We are members of one body, but differentiated members, each with his own vocation. A man's upbringing, his talents, his circumstances are usually a tolerable index of his vocation. If our parents have sent us to Oxford, if our country allows us to remain there, that is evidence that the life which we at any rate can best lead for the glory of God at present is the learned life. By leading that life to the glory of God, I do not, of course, mean any attempt to make our intellectual inquiries work out to edifying conclusions. Um, uh, he, uh, he has a little aside right here that I'm just skipping over because it's probably not important. Um, an appetite for these intellectual things exists in our human mind and God makes no appetite in vain. We can therefore pursue knowledge as such and beauty as such in the sure confidence that by so doing, we are either advancing to the vision of God ourselves or indirectly helping others to do so. Does that get to your, that's the then value, maybe connecting Graham and AJ's questions. Why do we do this? Because you're passing on this knowledge that is for the benefit of others, right? And, and because it's an innate hunger built into man by God, yes. right? He doesn't let any hunger exist unnaturally. So, and the story of your life has brought you to this moment here. So while you're here, do it for the glory of God. And if your circumstances change, then do that. Yeah. But that's, that is where I think his argument breaks down, right? Same, you, same your circumstances, your context has brought you here, yeah. perhaps by accident. 
And if you decided... There's no accidents, AJ. Yeah. There's no accidents. Okay, fine. No accidents. So either way, accident or no accident, you could tomorrow choose to go to the front. And now your context has changed. You could make the, make the exact same argument about being at the front. And I think there would be no problem with... If a student decided that they should go serve I think in, in the war, I don't think there'd be a problem there. But isn't that the question he's supposed to be addressing? Is he's how that, can we stay yeah. here if we could be going to the war? Yeah, yeah. I think the question is like, you're talking to a room of 100 people. Do all of those 100 people need to right now drop out because they are doing an immoral thing by being in school? Or do they have a freedom to stay where they are or go to war? But I think just saying your your circumstances have plunked you here, therefore it's okay, is a, is a poor argument, isn't that? Like... Do you, so if he says that the work that they're doing is worthwhile, that there's a human hunger that they're satisfying by this intellectual pursuit, and it's not only for themselves, it is for themselves, but also for others, this work is worthwhile. Therefore, you can pursue this worthwhile work or this worthwhile work of fighting in the war. Um, again, I, I think the question is one of hierarchy, especially in yeah. wartime. Right? So why like, is I still? have to know that this work, even if it is worthwhile, is more worthwhile than the work I could be doing at the front. Yeah. Right? That still has, that has yet to be proven. Because I could be talking to a room full of vacuum salesmen. Yeah. Is selling vacuums worthwhile work? Sure. Could they better spend their time at the front? That's, I mean, that's a... But then that creates the hierarchy then of the intellectual work being more important than the vacuum salesman. Do you think that? You think... I mean, both of those options suck. I mean, this has been classical stuff you should know. (laughs) That's not true. I mean, maybe if you want to talk about the hierarchy between intellectual work and vacuums, fine. My point is that any activity in the face of the impending destruction of your country has to be has to be weighed on the scales of, okay, can I do this activity and feel morally right about possibly risking many of my countrymen to subservience and perhaps death? by my devoting myself to this instead. I think I use the example of vacuums because no one would rightfully say vacuums is noble enough to tear me away. But the point is that the context is not the thing that determines it. It should be a a hierarchy of activities. And yes, that the intellectual life is worthy, but I need to see that it's more worthy or at least as worthy as wartime work. Yeah. Okay. Were you about to jump in before? Uh, There's a, uh, AJ, what was that like existentialist guy that we did an episode on where he was like, oh, maybe I stay and take care of my mom instead of go to war? Oh, uh, Sartre, wasn't it? Uh, that was Existentialism is, is a humanism. humanism. Yeah. By. Is that not Jean Paul? One of them. One, a Frenchie. A sad French. It's part. always the French. Yeah, Jean Paul Sartre. Um, so, what was his argument there? Do you remember? Because that was about the same kind of question, uh, judging between two options. His his two options were: I can stay here and stay with my mother, who has lost all her other sons, and if she lost me, she would be devastated, which is a worthy thing mm-hmm. to stay and have my mother's love and mm-hmm. to protect her here. Or I could be going to protect my brethren and my countrymen on the front. Is that not Both- the same equivalent as I could speak? Um, Staying here and going to school and continuing the great tradition of, of human inquiry, or I could be pr- fighting alongside my brethren on the front. I think Sartre was trying to to give two level and equal options that would both be morally positive, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't want to devastate my mother, and I don't want to risk my brothers. You know, both are... And I think he tried to keep it as level as possible. You see, I need, you see it as like... A, a, you see a much clearer distinction between those two options between reading the odyssey and, and going to war and fighting yeah. nazis a a world destroying evil yeah yes 
Uh, I mean, like, I, I'm going to have to see that those are at least equal before yeah. I make my decision. But don't, I, you I, take I, I don't can... necessarily have a beef with it. I'm just saying he hasn't proven it. Yeah. Um, but isn't he sort of saying that he's he's opening the door for the person to be able to think about their particular context? I don't know. No, he's he has justified it via the context. Yeah. Your context has put you here, therefore you are okay. And I'm saying it's not, that is not enough of a justification. Yeah. Let me, uh, uh, let's see if some of this will answer. Save him, Thomas. I, I won't. The learned life then is for some a duty. At the moment, it looks as if it were your duty, these people sitting in the room. I'm well aware that there may seem to be an almost comic discrepancy between the high issues we have been considering, like the war, and the immediate task you may be set down to, such as Anglo-Saxon sound laws or chemical formula. But there is a similar shock awaiting us in every vocation. A young priest finds himself involved in choir treats and a young subaltern in accounting for pots of jam. It is well that it should be so. It weeds out the vain, windy people and keeps in those who are uh, and keeps in those who are both humble and tough. On that kind of difficulty, we need waste no sympathy. But the peculiar difficulty imposed on you by the war is another matter, and of it I would again repeat what I have been saying in one form or another ever since I started. Do not let your nerves and emotions lead you into thinking your predicament more abnormal than it really is. Perhaps it may be useful to mention, uh, he has some exercises which may help, their, they serve as defenses against this. So AJ, I think you're asking for mm -hmm. him to elevate everything to the same level and say why these are cosmically significant e equivalently, the intellectual pursuit and the war. The war clearly has a significance of if the Nazis win, that's we bad. Game over, man. Game over, man. Um, and he takes it the other way to say that there's actually like a common lowness to all positions of like, at some point we're just doing mundane tasks and that not everything is like the important, significant work we give it. And so that's the equivalent between them all is that yes, the, there are many soldiers who will fight in important battles that turn the tide of war, but not all of them do. Some of them, um, protect, you know, um, outposts that are never attacked, right? Like not everyone who's a part of the war is fighting off the Nazis in the way that um, we, we might heighten it to. Sure. Same for the people in a religious vocation. They're not all preaching the gospel and like saving souls. Sometimes they're just doing taxes for Graham's example before. So I think that's his way of getting to that question. Do you find this interesting I, or compelling? I, well, I still, still don't find it satisfying. Yeah. I mean, to say that there are mundane tasks that contribute to both activities don't escape that one activity, like the mundane tasks of one will be contributing to a greater good than perhaps the mundane tasks of another. I think, yeah, and I think that's an open question, but you're saying he hasn't really argued that or one. Or the potentiality, so. like if you fight in the war, like think of that, the, like think of if you got put into the, the, the best situation in that war for you to bring about goodness. Combat medic. So like you go in there and you are, you have Hitler in your crosshairs and you take him out. And you're at the same okay. time like saving someone yeah. else from death. Or then, and <laughs> sure. then in like alternate universe where you decide to stay at Oxford, where like alternate universe you is shooting Hitler, um, you are like discovering a new Dead Sea Scroll. Uh -huh. It's like, okay, well, which one is more important? Is that kind of like your, the, what AJ is getting at? Yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm pointing at. And he's he has sort of tried to dodge it by calling both a duty. But I would say that there are even hierarchies of duty, right? It's my duty to, to take out the trash and it's my duty to raise my children. One of those, I think, I mean, granted, if I don't take out the trash, it can become a problem really fast. But true. But I think that anyone would recognize that one of those duties is more important than the other. 
Yeah, but we but we still do both, right? The lower duty of taking out the trash, which I think you're implying is the lower duty. It was unclear from your example <laughs> that um, the trash still has to be taken out, even though I need to raise my children. But I can read books at the front. Yeah, and that's and then the point is like, well, then where do these books come from? Someone has to create these works. Someone has to be, become a. In his example of a critic, it's like a you are trained to do that. So yeah. someone has to do that work to then ennoble the soldiers in this example. But nobody has to do it now. Like there are plenty of books to read at the front without critics doing their job. And then that's his earlier point of there's always some reason to say we're on the precipice of destruction. We might all die. Therefore, we should push off this work to later. And at that point, the later never comes. There's always some threat that we have. But but again, it seems like he's dodging several sliding scales here. And there's a sliding scale of, okay, is the world going to be perfect to a point where I am completely safe always to do this work? No, but... There's going to be better than, yeah. There are there are certain dangers that require immediate attention. If my house is on fire, right. should I be pursuing painting in the basement? Probably yeah. not. 100%. Right? That's the perfect time. And so uh, I, I, don't, I don't know that he's proven it yet. And I'm not, I don't disagree with him. I uh-huh. really do think that, that pursuing art and studies in the midst of war is a worthy human pursuit. I just don't think his arguments have necessarily proven that. Okay. Is that fair? Am I, am sure. I being a statement? I hate to see here? why you disagreeing with somebody would look like. <laughs> I, oh, fair, fair enough. <laughs> uh, I, I'll, I'll read the wrap up of it. Um, so again, I, 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 of course, do find the argument compelling since I bring it here. Um, I, I think that the problem he points to of you being able to look outside of oneself and always find some reason not to go after the higher things, the better things, the mm. intellectual things. There's always a reason to do that, to to not do that, um, and. The point is that, like the point he's getting at is that all war does is change when we die. It doesn't change if we die. I think that's actually the next part that I'll read. Um, And so then in that sense, if death is always the thing approaching, well, we could dedicate our lives to always trying to extend that point out or we live the life that we have in front of us in the best way possible. Um, And I think that's the, and there are many different roles to play in that life. That was his image of the one body with many gifts. So I find it interesting. No, I, I find that particular piece more compelling than perhaps the other sure. arguments, right? That death is coming and yeah, war can stave it off and war can prevent some other things we really don't like, but pursuing art and maybe, maybe he talked about this and I just missed it, but pursuing art is something that we definitely will dedicate our lives to even in subservience. Say the war goes wrong and we are, yeah. we are under the boot of the Nazis, right? The, the hard leather jackboot. And we will still read good books, try to pursue poetry and right. art yeah. and stuff like that. And so if it is worthy pursuing even in subservience, it is worthy pursuing even in the midst of war. He doesn't have this example, but like if you have a – so the three of us are total nerds and I wear glasses. Do either of you wear contacts? No. Okay. Well, you all maybe would be better uh, candidates for war. But like if you have some like nearsighted nerd who like can't fire a gun but can study the Iliad really well or knows Greek really well, like you would still – you would say that that person's hierarchy would still put war at a higher value, even if they're bad at war. Uh, they'd be disqualified. Yeah, I wouldn't put it put it at war because at that point you might be more of a hindrance than a help. Right. Yeah, but of course, I, I think certain countries may have taken Anyone people with poor sight, eyesight anyway, and right. said like, "Look, man, you skin potatoes for the troops, right?" And find a job. Yeah, Thomas, you out of the three of us are the biggest, are the bigger movie. Oh, just Snob I mean, or the nerd. bigger mo- movie cre- uh, watcher? L- loser? No. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. no, no. I um, think I take that by. Yeah, AJ is the biggest movie loser. What? 
I, I don't the have movie. Book? I have no, no, no. Biggest oh. nerd. Oh. Biggest nerd slash loser. I think that's me. That's okay. We're all objectively. Losers. We could argue this, but let's do it. But, um, Tarkovsky. Have you ever seen any of his films? No. Okay. Neither have I. But um, <laughs> because no, <laughs> oh, the point is, I've never watched. Is this, where this is going? Okay. Is this Stalker? Is no, this no. The one this with, isn't Stalker. Okay. I've never watched any of his films all the way through. Solaris? But I've seen some scenes, and the, one of his earlier ones, um, it's Andre Rublev is the name of the movie. Uh-huh. It is asking this kind of question because I think the main character, Rublev, is of an icon artist. Like, he makes iconography, like uh-huh. the, the saint, the pictures of the saints. Right. And he works in this church, and then it gets taken over by the... Or then the, like, One of the ending scenes of the movie is, is the church getting basically ransacked by, um, like, the horde. You know, the hordes of... Mm-hmm. of, of ri- ride through Russia and burn the church down. It's right. him sitting in the middle of this, like, burning church. And then his old me- painting mentor, who's long since dead, like comes to the church and talks to him about the necessary, the necessity of mm. basically what you're talking about right, right now. I was hoping that you could shed light because you, I, I assume, mm. as I'm somebody who good. likes no. mo- movies, would have watched it. Because you, you, we have success- unsuccessfully tried to do Snobby Movie Club, correct? Which we've never gotten off the ground. I've started recording that other podcast, the uh, Fake Film Snob Podcast, yeah. but we're currently in the middle of watching Spike Lee films, so we're mm-hmm. not quite too. Mm-hmm. Tarkovsky. Uh, anyway, I, I, so may, maybe listener, if if you guys are are Tarkovsky fans, you could enlighten us as to whether or not this scene Is sheds any sort of other little light. Yeah. What was that movie you had me watch about that guy who? <laughs> yeah. What a great way to start. <laughs> you forced me to watch. Yeah, like who uh, takes a journey into a weird land and there's a room that grants wishes. A stalker. That's stalker. That's, stalker. That's, you that's, watched it? Yeah. That was good. Have you guys not? I've never. Was seen I the only one? We talked about it. We talked about it, and then you went and watched it. I've never. I watched it. Was it good? It was all right. It's kind of weird, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it's very weird. It's really weird. Okay, I'll read this last part just because it relates to what we're... I I love it when I hit my microphone. It relates, I think, to what we have been talking about. War threatens us with death and pain. No man, and especially no Christian who remembers Gethsemane, needs try to attain a stoic indifference about these things, but we can guard against the illusions of the imagination. We think of the streets of Warsaw and contrast the deaths there suffered with an abstraction called life. But there is no question of death or life for any of us, only a question of this death or of that, of a machine gun bullet now or a cancer 40 years later. What does war do to death? It certainly does not make it more frequent. 100% of us die, and the percentage cannot be increased. It puts several deaths earlier, but I hardly suppose that this is what we fear. Certainly when the moment comes, it will make little difference how many years we have behind us. Does it increase our chances of a painful death? I doubt it. As far as I can find out, what we call natural death is usually preceded by suffering, and a battlefield is one of the very few places where one has a reasonable prospect of dying with no pain at all. Does it decrease our chance of dying at peace with God? I cannot believe it. If active service does not persuade a man to prepare for death, what conceivable concatenation of circumstances would? Yet war does do something to death. It forces us to remember it. The only reason why the cancer at 60 or the paralysis at 75 do not bother us is that we forget them. War makes death real to us, and that would have been regarded as one of its blessings by most of the great Christians of the past. It's almost done, sorry. Oh no, keep going, it's good. They thought it good for us to be always aware of our mortality. I am inclined to think they were right. All the animal life in us, all schemes of happiness that centered in this world were always doomed to a final frustration. In ordinary times, only a wise man can realize it. Now the stupid of us knows, the stupidest of us knows. 
we see unmistakably the sort of universe in which we have all along been living and must come to terms with it. If we had foolish, unchristian hopes about human culture, they are now shattered. If we thought we were building up a heaven on earth, if we looked for something that would turn the present world from a place of pilgrimage into a permanent city satisfying the soul of man, we are disillusioned and not a moment too soon. But if we thought that for some souls and at some times, the life of learning humbly offered to God was, in its own small way, one of the appointed approaches to the divine reality and the divine beauty which we hope to enjoy hereafter, we can think so still. And I think that's been his best argument so far. Agreed. Mm -hmm. All right, that's all I got. And that was also the very last section of the of the speech. So thank you really all. Good. Thank cool. you all for listening. Who opened us? AJ? I did. Okay. Well, this has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. As always, you can send us emails at theguysatclassicalstuff.net. We'll answer them if we can. But we definitely spend more time answering our Patreon members. And you can be a Patreon member too. You can find us at Classical Stuff, patreon.com slash classical stuff. There it is. You can also tweet at us at CLSSCAL stuff. Is that all the stuffs? Oh, our website, classicalstuff.net. You can you find our episodes there. Huh? Did you say Twitter? Yep. CLSSCAL stuff. Cool. Yeah. Did that one. I think I got them all. Nailed it. Okay. Anyway, and uh, we're off to record an in-between episode, which you can, again, find on our Patreon. So thanks for listening. And to all of our Patreon supporters, we love you. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.